Resurrexi et adhuc tecum sum. Alleluia. Brothers and sisters, we made it. And we have made it to the greatest feast day in the church, Easter, the celebration of the resurrection. Um, Jason, obviously, is still still on the road, so uh, he's not with us, so I have to do a solo episode, but I really wanted to do this episode. It was really important to me that... Um, that I'd be able to do this or that we'd be able to talk about this because I have kind of a, an interesting one for you. That being said, it is hard to do a podcast solo, I think. Um, and I'm so eternally grateful for, for Jason working on this podcast with me because, but for him, it would just be one lonely guy screaming into the internet by himself all the time. Um, but I think it's going to be a fun one. I've got something that I, I, I couldn't wait to talk about on Easter um, and this is the this episode is going to be the fruit of a lot of things I've been thinking about going all the way even back to before Lent started. Uh, for our opening prayer, I thought we would take from uh, the, the Roman breviary um, on Easter Sunday. And uh, I'll do the English translation of it real quick and then we'll pray it in Latin. It said, God, on this day, thou, through thine only begotten son overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life. As by thy anticipating grace thou breathest good desires into our hearts, so also by thy gracious help bring them to good effect. It's a great prayer. So um, with that being said, uh, please join us, and um, hopefully we will have a, a wonderful and fruitful discussion on the resurrection of Christ. In omni patris et fili et spiritus sancti. Amen. Domini exaudi orationi meam, et clamor meos ad te videat, oremus. Deus qui hodineria dei per inigentium tuum attenitatis nobis, auditum de victa morte reserasti, vota nostra que praveniendo aspiras, etiam adjuvando prosequere. Porindum dominum nostrum Jesum Christum, filium tuum, qui tecum vivida regnat in unitati spiritus sancti, Deus per omnia secula seculorum, amen. Nomini patris et fili et spiritus sancti, amen. Those of you who know me, uh, who will know that I, you know, neither myself nor Jason are, are biblical scholars. We don't have any uh, PhDs or publications about biblical history or biblical legs of Jesus or anything like that. But we are still, as lay people, incredibly interested in this subject. Not just interested in the Bible for its spiritual and moral truths that it that it um, uh, communicates to us. But the entire history of the, the events talked about in the scriptures, um, and there are levels of biblical uh, scholarship, and one of them that I'm always kind of interested in is sort of like that secular, almost atheist biblical historianship. You know, where they try to find out what what really happened in the Bible, you know, like you can't really trust. It's sort of a give and take with those folks. You can't trust anything that's actually written down in the scriptures. You have to, you know, you have to doubt everything until you have reason to believe that any of it is true, which I think is a, a weird uh, <laughs> benchmark for, for trying to find the truth, but okay. Um, and I always like to find out what these guys are thinking about and talking about because it helps me think about my faith and and uh, because I, I firmly do believe that if you love the truth, the truth will always lead you to Christ because Christ is the truth. He is the the incarnate truth. But these guys, you know, the the, the secular sort of atheist biblical scholarship will do things like the, the stories of Christ in the Bible where he's casting out demons. They will say, well, you know, that was probably just mentally ill people with schizophrenia. And they didn't know what schizophrenia was back then. And, you know, obviously they don't think Jesus is God. And so Jesus didn't know what schizophrenia was. So he thought he was casting out demons and so did everybody else. I can't go back in time and find these individuals and do the, the, the necessary, you know, investigation to prove that one way or the other. You either accept the story on faith or you don't. Right. Uh if you if you want to believe that he was actually just treating people with schizophrenia well i mean that opens up a whole other post of problems like for example how many people have successfully been treated with schizophrenia by saying schizophrenia be gone and then they're just better again i've never i've never seen that i've never heard of that maybe there are medical professionals out there who can tell me yep it really is that easy 
Um, but I've never seen that. So, but, but whatever, again, it goes back to, it's one of these things that, you know, you either believe it or you don't. There are supernatural occurrences that happen in the Bible, but typically they happen sort of alone in private. You know, there's not a lot of attestation to them. The story of the incarnation, it happens to the Virgin Mary alone in a room with an angel. You either take the story on faith or you don't. And, you know, other than your eternal salvation, not believing in the story doesn't cost you anything. You know, there's no historical uh, sort of uh, incidences that surround this event that you now have to explain and just sort of say, well, I don't believe that happened. You know, faith is a gift of the Holy Ghost and we obviously pray for your conversion, but I can't, I can't have a, and there's no argument or discussion really to be had there, and from my opinion. But then you get to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and you have a problem. And I thought, what would be, what would be the consequences of just outright denying the resurrection? Let's just explore that for just a moment. I mean, if you deny the if you deny the story of the resurrection, let's say you're an atheist or you're an agnostic or you're just a very, very skeptical person who believes sort of in the overall message of Jesus, but the story of the resurrection was probably something that was invented later to, you know, boost up his credentials or something like that. Okay. Let's let's explore if that was true or not. You now have some things that you have to explain that all of the sudden become very difficult. And that's what I wanted to get into today. Is it, is, it, is it easier to believe in the resurrection or is it easier to deny it? What I have found in my exploration of this, and I'm typically a pretty skeptical person, is that denying the resurrection of Jesus gives you a lot more problems than you actually solve by denying the resurrection of Jesus from a rationalist, skeptical point of view. You have some very serious problems that you now have to explain. That's what I want to get into. The third three books that I sort of have been pouring over um, this Lenten season, full disclosure, all three books are written by Protestants. You can I can feel the seething hatred in the comments below right now. Uh, speaking of comments below, in the in the description here, you'll see tradmanpodcast.com, our, our website. Be sure to visit the shop and pick yourself up some Tradman merch. If you like this podcast, hit like uh, or hit uh, the subscribe button, like it, hit the little bell icon so you get updates and things like that. And uh, we'd love to hear from you in the comment section. The three books that I'm talking about, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach by Michael Lycona. Michael Lycona is a professor at Houston Baptist University. He is a Protestant, no question, okay? All three of these books I'm recommending to you, I have read cover to cover. I have detected no theological error in here that I feel like it would be a bad thing for me to recommend these books to you, okay? Um, all of these books deal solely with the Passion and Resurrection of Our Lord from a historiographical perspective, not from a theological perspective. So you're not going to get any bad theology in these books, I don't think. Okay. The other, the next book, and my favorite book so far, is The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a high Anglican uh, uh, cleric. He's one of these guys who... If I ever get a chance to meet him in person, I'm going to ask him one day, why aren't you Catholic? Because I feel like that would be a good question to ask because, man, it seems like he's close. And this last book that I'm going to recommend um, is really only if you sort of like historical sources. This is, this is not a, a narrative of, of anything. This is a collection of sources the Trial and Crucifixion of Jesus, Texts and Commentary, by David W. Chapman and Eckhard J. Shanabel. Uh, anything you ever wanted to know about what, how Jews tried capital blasphemy, 
cases in first century Palestine, how the Romans tried cases of sedition and capital cases in first century Palestine. What was crucifixion like? Where did it come from? How did it evolve? What kind of people got crucified? Um, how was it determined that they would be crucified? Was there, I mean, this is, this is an excellent, for people who say, well, you know, there's no first, there's no first century source, uh, extra biblical source material for the, for the crucifixion or for crucifixion in general. That's all this is. And they, and when he, when he, when they bring you sources, they all, they bring it to you in the original Latin, Greek, or Hebrew, then a translation, then text and commentary. It, it is a fantastic resource. I really, really recommend it. Um, there are two things about Jesus of Nazareth that all historical scholars that are taken seriously by anybody, okay, all agree on two things. One, he existed. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who lived in a real time and a real place. And that place was first century Palestine. Okay. It is almost beyond dispute. Now there are atheist people out there who have a, a, a mission to try and disprove this. I, I, you know, here's the deal that, but most of the scholars don't care to prove it or disprove it. They just want to find out the truth whatever that is. And the truth seems to be that we are talking about a time and a place where people did not write a lot of things down. Not typically. That's difficult for us to sort of imagine because we live in a world in which, you know, every 15 minutes, CNN's got late breaking headlines. Britney Spears has released a new album and then they'll talk about that for like five hours, right? So every dumb little event in the world gets 15,000 pounds of ink spilled over it, right? Um, <laughs> or 15,000 gallons of ink, I guess. Liquid is measured not differently than solids, but anyway. But back in the day, back in first century Palestine, people didn't, A, the average person did not read or write. There really wasn't much of a point in writing a lot of things down. So the fact that anybody wrote anything about this first century Jewish carpenter turned rabbi is pretty much seen as evidence that he was a real guy. There is extra biblical first century uh, writing about Jesus of Nazareth. And there's a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests that that he existed. Okay, So he's taken to be as a real person. That's the first thing. The second thing that is so certain it is almost considered to be beyond dispute, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion under the Roman procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate, somewhere around 30 AD. Okay, This crucifixion event is seen as so certain, it, it's almost beyond there aren't there aren't any real scholarship out there trying to prove that the crucifixion didn't happen. Okay. But other than that, every other detail about Jesus of Nazareth is sort of up for grabs in the scholarship arena. And there are some paper, there's some people who will say, yeah, that whole story about uh, the transfiguration. Yeah, that was that was added later by pious believers. Didn't really happen. Why do they think that? Well, because there's no other witnesses other than the two people who are written about who say who claim that it happened. And so on that criteria alone, it's decided to be a a fake thing that didn't really happen. Again, I think that's a a, a very flawed methodology. I certainly believe in the transfiguration, but uh, this is sort of the methodology that they use. Now, if it's true that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under the Roman procurator of Judea, we now have a problem when we deny the resurrection, right? We have almost as a certainty that Jesus was crucified. What happened to the body? See, we have to answer that question if we deny the resurrection, right? We're claiming the resurrection is a uh, a superstitious figment, uh, 
brought up by, you know, Jesus's followers or invented by them. Okay. We now have a lot. We have several problems. The first problem is we now have to account for the corpse. Now, you could say, well, that's not really that big of a problem because this um, this resurrection of Jesus thing doesn't come about for years after the events in question. And so nobody's really looking for the body by that time or having any thoughts about the, the, the body or anything. And so it's not really as big a problem as you might think. But here's the problem with that. There is a Pharisee turned member of the Jesus movement, turned bishop in the Jesus movement named Paul of Tarsus. And he's writing letters to the Colossians saying that Jesus died, he was buried, and that his body rose. It appeared to me, it appeared here, here, and here. There was an incident where it appeared to 500 people. You all know that story. He totally glosses over the story, doesn't tell us the story, which means that the story is so well known he doesn't need to recount it for these folks. This letter that uh, that arrives uh, in Colossus in Colossa or, or Colossia is not. The, we don't have any evidence that the people who first read this letter went, "What the heck is he talking about?" Five hundred. Did did you hear about this? I never heard about this. What is he talking about? We never hear that. The the letter seems to become instant, you know, canon, if you will. I mean, not the the Bible didn't ex- the New Testament didn't exist yet. Right? We hadn't compiled those books yet. But this is happening. This letter, these letters that we're talking about, are written less than twenty years after the events in question. Um, which means that Paul himself, and he admits to receiving this teaching from uh, the party in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, before he had visited uh, the uh, the place where he's writing these letters to. And by the scholarly estimation of the time frame when that would have had to have happened, we would have been looking at Paul converting and receiving the teaching in Jerusalem no less than about two or three years after the events of Jesus's crucifixion. That's not a lot of time to invent a story about a guy who everybody saw die, but now he's back and nobody's really seen him, but somehow we got everybody to agree they said they've seen him. That, I yeah, that's just not a plausible explanation of that to me. I, I don't know quite how you do that. Maybe somebody can explain it to me, but it seems very difficult to me. In first century Palestine, before the invention of cell phones, internet, email, anything like this, to to get a rumor going that everybody has seen this crucified rabbi, he's back and not only is he back, he doesn't look like, he, he looks better than ever. He still has his crucifixion wounds. I saw him, you saw him, and there were 500 other people who saw him at, at another event, as well as various other instances. And everybody just sort of goes along with it, even though they know it's not true. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So you have to come up with what happened to the body. If we're going to say that this that this resurrection story is bunk, it was made up, it didn't really happen. We do know that it originates very early in the church, right, based on Paul's letters. So now we have to determine how they pulled this off. And you do have to determine what happened to the body, because if there was nothing that happened to the body, the Jesus movement simply would not exist. The entire conversion of of thousands of first century Jews to the Christian church is predicated on the notion that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Thousands of Jews are not going to convert to a messianic movement for a guy they saw get crucified, and that was the end of the story. 
It's just not, I just don't see how in the world that would happen. You also have at this same time a temple apparatus that is dedicated to putting the Jesus movement out of business. They see the Jesus movement as a significant threat to the, to the piety of the Jewish people. And this is a problem because thousands of people are converting to this messianic movement every day. Well, <laughs> if he didn't rise from the dead, if you're a first century priest, if you're a Sadducee priest in the temple, and you see this Jesus movement just converting thousands and thousands of people every day, what would be the first thing you would do? Go get the body. Go get the body, drag it out here, throw it on the steps of the Temple Mount and say, there's your resurrected Jesus. Are we done with this now? Are we done? And that would have been the end of the Jesus movement, period. People would have wrote about that. They would have written about that. That would have been a pretty... Uh, actually, probably nobody would have written about that because I don't think anybody would know who Jesus of Nazareth's name was. He would go. He would probably be along the other <clears throat> the other failed messiahs of the first century, who you've never heard of, and I've never heard of, because there were plenty of them. There's only one that's still talked about today, and not only is he talked about, he is the most famous person that has ever existed and the most controversial all at the same time, bar none. Um, there's a story in, and well, okay, I want to get to the gospels here in just a second, but going back to this body situation, um, in the new Testament, in one of the gospels, and I believe it's Matthew's gospel, but I could be wrong. There is, uh, the story of the guards, the Roman guards or the temple guards who were guarding the tomb who fell asleep and you know this story. And then they went to the, the, the rabbi or the, the, the priests and the priests told them, you know, to say that Jesus's disciples stole the body. And that's why they make that claim to this day. Sort of what it says. There are a lot of these biblical secular authors who believe that because that's only mentioned in one of the gospels and not all of them, that the temple, that the temple guard story at the, at the tomb didn't really happen, but was put there to explain why the rabbis are saying Jesus's disciples stole the body. But whether the temple guard story is true or not, isn't the point to me. What's interesting is it proves one thing that tomb was empty. And there was no explanation for that. The idea that the disciples stole the body presents some problems as well. One, you got to get all 11. There's only 11 of them now. Remember, Judas is Judas is taught, as the Germans would say. Um, you got to get 11 guys on board with a massive conspiracy to, in the middle of the night, in Jerusalem, during the Passover, when the city is, shall we say, crowded, to say the very least, you're going to have to remove this corpse and take it someplace, and this is the most important thing, where it can never, ever be found. Because if it's found, ever, by anybody, the jig is up, and the, and the movement is over. You have to get all 11 guys on board with this because if one guy talks, the jig is up. Um, it's not entirely obvious to me why the apostles would want to do this in the first place. They had just seen the same crucifixion scene everybody else had seen. And if I'm one of them, I don't know why I'd want to do this. Why are we going to say that this guy who they crucified because they hated him so much He's back now because I've seen him. And doesn't that mean that they're all in all likelihood going to do the exact same thing to me? And for what? He clearly wasn't the Messiah. Why would I do this? What is the point? In fact, that is exactly what happened to all 11 of the early apostles. They were all martyred in some way, shape or form. Peter himself was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Um, 
So I don't know why they would do this, number one. I don't know how they would do it, number two. But there's a third problem, and it's a big one, with the apostles stole the body hypothesis. Let's say you did it. Let's say you got all 11 guys on board, and they're just masochists who want to be crucified for some reason, and they really believe that if I make up this story about this resurrected Jesus and I go and I hide the body somewhere, people will believe it, and then we'll get our revenge on the, on the Sadducees and the Romans who crucified our, 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 our messianic rabbi. There's one person who you're going to have a hard time convincing me is going to go along with this, and that's his mother. I want you, those of you who are parents to imagine that you had witnessed your child going through what Jesus went through on Good Friday. And now I want you to imagine that I, as your friend, come to you and say, hey, you know what would be great is if we stole your child's corpse and hid it somewhere We'd probably we could chop it up into little pieces and then feed it to animals and then he'd never be found. And then we'll say he rose from the dead and that he's really the Messiah. You going to be on board with that? I, if I'm the Virgin Mary, I'm telling somebody. After what I've just witnessed the world put him through, you will not desecrate his body. Period. I, I just don't see how you get his mother on board with this. Um, and not only does she, is she apparently on board with the conspiracy, she becomes one of the greatest figures. She, she becomes the greatest figure second to Jesus himself in this Christian church movement by proclaiming this resurrection myth. That's, that's a difficult pill for me to swallow. That one's difficult for me. So I don't see any real, uh, uh, I don't see how the, 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 the stolen body hypothesis answers any questions. It raises more troubling questions than just accepting the resurrection. The, the, the resurrection of Jesus now sounds like a more plausible explanation than the stolen body hypothesis. So I eliminate that. Okay. Um, And there was another thing I wanted to talk about, which was in here that we talk about the resurrection. Um, oh, gosh, what was it? It was so good, too. Um, oh, the story. OK. You know, there are things that happen in the Bible and they're written a certain way that can it, it, it could be sort of uh, I don't know figurative language or you could say that well maybe that event didn't really happen they're just describing some sort of they're using a, a Hebrew uh, poetic tool to describe of something that you know maybe isn't what it is or something like that I mean the Bible can be a very difficult tool to analyze sometimes um, and that's why we always submit to the judgment of Holy Mother Church. She alone has the authority to interpret the Bible. So, you know, when we talk about, for example, the book, the book of Job, you know, was Job a real person? Well, the book of Job is in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, what, what the Hebrews called the Ketuvim. And it's, it's not about whether it's not when they're when we're talking about the book of job we're not talking about historical events it's a story that is being used to illustrate ideas about theodicy the, the justice of god obedience to god what it is we can know about god and his justice and how he works but it doesn't describe people places and things the way that the new testament gospels do right when they when the when 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 the bible uses mythical language and i i don't mean myth sort of in the modern sense we use that word as a story that didn't happen i mean it in the religious context of a theological 
story, okay? When, we, when, we, when the Bible uses mythic language, it will use things like, um, like the, the, the Garden of Eden story. God created a garden called Eden. And we can't open up a globe or a, or, or a you know, a, an atlas and point anywhere on our globe where we can say, yep, and there is the land of Eden. We can't, we, we can't do that. Um, and so when we read the fall and the catechism says we have to look at the figurative language that's being used when we read the story of the Garden of Eden. But that's not the way Luke writes. Luke writes a gospel, you know, in the second year of the reign of Tiberius in the, in, in the city of Bethlehem. And I mean, these are real people. He places Jesus's life perfectly in a time and a place that other people who we know existed lived. Okay. So now we know we're talking about real historical events. In the story of the resurrection, and if you'll notice, all four Gospels tell the story a little differently. But they all have the same sort of beginning of the story, which is Jesus was found by women. This makes sense because um, on the Sabbath or, or during the Passover, uh, you would not be able to tend to the body. You would not be able to tend to a, a fresh corpse. That would be forbidden on the Sabbath. So the day after the Sabbath is over, women go to anoint the body with spices and oils. Um, this is done for a couple of reasons. Burial in first century Palestine had a weird sort of thing. They did not stick the body in the ground. Uh, I don't know why they didn't do that. But typically what would happen is you would be buried in a rock-hewn You'd be laid in a rock-hewn tomb above ground. And that tomb would be sealed up with stone. And you would lay there for a year, two years, until the decomposition of the body had completely taken place and there was nothing left but skeletal remains. And then, at the end of the year and a half, second year, the, ske uh, the skeletal remains would be gathered and put in a small box called an ossuary. And then that would be stored... Um, in some type of, uh, um, you know, a family uh, uh, plot or some type of a, you know, a place where ossuaries are stored, okay? Um, the women would typically do this work because touching a, a corpse was considered to be ritually impure and men did not, would not do that, Um However, if you're making up this story, this would not be the way you'd want to begin it for a couple of reasons. One of which being women are not considered reliable witnesses in first century Palestine, period. In fact, if you notice, when St. Paul talks about the resurrection, he doesn't mention the women at all. Now, some people have taken this to mean that Paul just hadn't heard this part of the story, which means this part of the story is made up or something like that. But in reality, if you're Paul, you wouldn't mention the women finding Jesus because that ain't real good for the story. That is not a detail that helps us out in this particularly. Now, sometimes it's one woman. Sometimes it's three women. Sometimes it's, it's the, the, the women are named. Sometimes they're different women, right? It, it, you get variations of the story, but the, the, the stories all agree on one thing, that Jesus was found by women first that the empty tomb was found by women first that is not a detail that somebody who's making up this story would have not made up somebody who's making up the story would not have made up that part of the story because that part of the story is very it's not good for you <laughs> okay to say the least um Women could not be witnesses at trials women were considered it was sort of like uh the, de the default position is that if a woman's talking, she's lying or she's prone to hysteronics or you know, whatever. Um, so the, the fact that women find the tomb empty first is very telling to me that this is a true account of what happened a couple of days after the crucifixion. 
Um, Peter is always there as the as the first one of the apostles who looks into the tomb. Now they see somebody at the tomb and in one gospel, he's called a man sitting in the tomb in bright clothes. In another gospel, he's called an angel. Sometimes there are two angels, but they all say the same thing. You come seeking Jesus of Nazareth, the one who has been crucified, but he is not here. He has been raised. <laughs> and then and I, and I believe it's Matthew's gospel here. Correct me. I could be wrong. The women get scared. They leave and they tell no one. That's a pretty accurate. That, that's a believable story. Because that would be my reaction to coming across something like that. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of these women who have witnessed a horrible, horrible scene two days ago. To say it was heartbreaking I think would probably be the understatement of the century. And they get there and the rock is rolled away. And there's a very strange man sitting in there who has told them something. I, I don't, I don't know how I would have reacted. I probably sure, probably sure I would have been scared. I would have run away and I wouldn't have told anybody. Is someone playing a trick on me? Am I being set up so that I can be crucified or stoned next? Is this a joke? What, 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 what's happening here? If it's a joke, it's a cruel joke. Um, the, the stories of the, the apostles when they first encounter the resurrected Christ are pretty plausible. Um, they they don't believe right away. And that's to be expected. I mean, after all, the Pharisees at the time did believe in the resurrection of the body, but that was thought to be something that would happen at the end of time. It's pretty much understood, even in first century Palestine, as religious as those people were in the first century, things that die don't come back to life. It's pretty much known and they're a little bit incredulous about this i would be and they're cautious they're scared also peter peter doesn't walk into the tomb and upon seeing the the angel falls to his knees and and exports some beautiful canticle he just knows all the right words to say he sort of hesitantly sort of peeks his head into this tomb He's probably scared. I would be. I would be. That's a that's a real sounding story to me. Um. I I especially enjoy the story of Thomas putting his finger in the side of Christ. I would have been Thomas one hundred percent. My my it is simply it is simply a better explanation to believe that I'm hallucinating. Than that, than that, this rabbi has been resurrected. So, I, it's unlikely I'm hallucinating, but that's a more plausible explanation. And Jesus is so patient and so wonderful with those of us who actually seek the truth. It's not wrong to have questions, but it's 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 wrong to raise those questions when you don't have any real love for what the answer could be. But Jesus doesn't say, you know, get thee behind me, Thomas, you are of Satan, and lo, you do not believe. And he didn't say any of that. He says, come here, put your finger right here. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. And Thomas puts his finger in the side of Christ. And he says, I think the only thing you can say is something like that. My Lord and my God, Deus meus. At Domine Deus Meus. Um, that's a real sounding story to me. And if it's not true, you have what is in my estimation the, the biggest obstacle you have to, intellectual obstacle you have to overcome is you have to explain the rise of the early church. 
remember these men who supposedly made this story up and stole the body in order to perpetuate the greatest hoax in the history of the world at the crucifixion they were nowhere to be found because they skedaddled do you think they wanted to believe i i bet you money that they never even that on holy saturday they never wanted to hear the name jesus of nazareth ever again Weird little digression here, but I want to go back to Good Friday. Well, really Holy Thursday at the trial. I have a weird sort of take on Peter's denial. And if I'm in error here, it is by accident. I obviously submit to the judgment of Holy Mother Church when she interprets and analyzes the Bible. But it's always sort of taken as a, as a matter of fact that Peter denied Christ because he was scared of the crowd, right? The crowd has turned on Jesus. And if Simon Peter is associated with Jesus, they're going to turn on him and he could meet a terrible fate as well. I don't think so. I think he denied Christ for a very different reason. Possibly. At least I like to entertain the, the possibility. That maybe that's what happened. Because remember hours ago in the, in the garden of Gethsemane, Peter wasn't scared of these people. He drew his sword out. He was ready to get down with them right there in the garden of in the garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't scared of these temple guards. Not to mention the fact that it says later on in the gospel that he follows the party to Caiaphas' house for the trial. If he's so scared of these people, why is he going there intentionally? And by the way, the denial of Peter, the story of the denial of Peter is one of these stories that historical scholars tend to believe is something that actually happened because it, it, it makes the first leader of the Christian church look not that great. They would not have included that if it didn't really happen. It's a, it's, it's a story that's in all four canonical gospels. And so it's taken to be something that was a real event, the denial of Peter uh, at the trial. So why does he deny Christ? Well, what if, remember when he drew his sword out in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord told him to put the sword away. What if Peter was thinking, oh, okay, you're going to do something. And I've, follow, I've been following you for three years and I can see the things, I've seen the things that you can do. What are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to turn all these people into snakes or what? Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be, I'm going to this trial. I'm not missing this for the world. He's going to turn all you people into snakes, and then we'll see what's up. We'll see who's laughing then. Ha! Just you wait. This is going to be good. And then he gets to the trial, and Jesus says nothing. He mounts no defense of himself. He is spit on. He is beaten. He is hit. He is insulted. He's lied about. And he says nothing. What if Peter at that point said, you know what? I'm done with this guy. I'm done with him. He doesn't want to solve the problem. Well, it's you're the Messiah, dude. You know, we're all sitting here waiting and you're not going to do anything. You can solve this problem anytime you want, but you don't want to solve it. So I'm out of here. Disillusionment, frustration, anger. It says in one of the gospel accounts, he's cursing and spitting as he's walking away. He's not scared. He's angry. How many of us have felt like that? I've felt like that. Every time the Catholic Church does something that is beyond explanation. You know, traditionis custodes. It would it would we would we would like it very much. I mean, I mean, go to mass and be holy, but don't go to mass and stop trying to be so holy. Do both of those things, please. And we're getting rid of the traditional Latin mass for no other reason other than we know you like it. And we're not even going to hide that. We're going to write it in, in the Traditionis Custodes letter that the reason we're getting rid of it is because we hate you people and we know you like it. How many of us felt like my imagined Peter at that moment? I did. I did. I was like, you know what, Jesus? It's your church. When you decide to step in and start doing something about it, you let me know until then. I'm not going to waste any more time on this. I felt like that. I felt like that. Maybe maybe we all kind of did once in a while. 
by the way, if you heard that, dang, I don't know what that was, something to do with my computer. But anyway, going back to our resurrection story, I think Peter was done. We never hear from him again on Good Friday. I have no reason in the world to believe that Peter was interested in making up a revenge story that would re-exalt this Jesus of Nazareth fellow. Because it appears to me that by the end of Good Friday, I think Peter was as done with the Jesus movement as I was when I read Traditionis Custodis. But there's more to the story, right? Peter not only, not only, ex, not only is a witness to the resurrection, but he is, he he is, he retakes his position as the chief of the apostles. He brings the church to Rome, and ultimately, the Roman church would bring the church to the world. There's no other explanation for that. I, I can't find anything else that I can think of that would take a man like Peter from, I'm done with this guy, I'm out, forget him. This was an obvious three-year waste of my time. I'm going to go back and go fishing. Takes him from that guy to the person in Acts that's walking into the temple and healing people and preaching and converting thousands and thousands of first century Jews a day to this Jesus movement. I can't think of another phenomenon that would convince thousands of first century Jews to join a movement of a, of a humiliated and defeated rabbi who everybody saw lay out, hang out there in the sun for nine hours. And now all of a sudden, thousands of Jews are converting to this Jesus movement. I just don't have another explanation for that. There has never been another example of a movement that has begun as a, as a Jewish reform movement and that went on and outgrew Judaism itself to become the largest religion in the world. I've never, I, there is no other historical phenomenon like that we can look at and say, well, you see, this happened over here, so it could have happened over here too. There is no, there is nothing like the Christian church. Nothing. We always like to talk about how the Catholic church is a 2,000 year old institution. It's not a 2,000-year-old institution. It's the 2,000-year-old institution. There aren't any other, in, there's no other 2,000-year-old hierarchical institutional structure anywhere. So when we look at the Christian church, when we look at the Catholic church, we really have to come to some kind of explanation as to how it came to be without the resurrection. And we just, there isn't one. Um, so I, I would invite you all, if you, if you like topics like this and you like to think about topics like this, this isn't really apologetics to me. I don't think so. I'm not really the apologetics guy because, um, I, I don't, um, I don't know that you can reason someone in or out of any religion. Maybe you can, but I, I personally think that we, we know that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, when we look at our own conversion stories, we can talk about a book that we read or something like that that led us to the Catholic Church. But ultimately, it's beyond it's something that's beyond explanation. We can't really explain it. Um, but if you like things like this because you like to think about, I don't know, for me, it's it's it's. It's important to think about what what really happened to Jesus after the crucifixion. I mean, what if what if that resurrection story is true? All of it, the the whole the whole narrative of the resurrection. If it's true, it is the most important event in all of human history. 
And if it's not, we need to at some point explain how it became the biggest non-event in all of human history. And what you'll find is, if you, as you read uh, these books that I was talking about, and I'll include an Amazon link in the description to, both, to all three of these wonderful works, it's more difficult to explain the Christian church without the resurrection than it is to explain the resurrection itself. I did not expect that to be the case. When I first started digging into this, I thought, well, they'll, they'll have some sort of an explanation for this, like the Jesus casting out the demons. It'll be something clever that I won't be able to necessarily refute, but it, it, I'm not going to let it shake my faith either, because it's one of these things you either believe in, you believe it happened on faith or, or not. Um, but I was very surprised to find out that when it comes to the resurrection, these same, uh, you know, secular, atheist, biblical historian scholars will admit they call the resurrection the single biggest problem in the New Testament. They see it as a problem because they don't have an explanation that can just dismiss the supernaturalness of the event that becomes a much more plausible explanation for what happened. They just don't have one. Now, they've come up with some other <laughs> interesting ideas about, well, this is what probably could have happened. You know, One of them is um, the swoon hypothesis. Now, this is the most bizarre one to me. I'll start with the most bizarre. This In this hypothesis, you see, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He was taken down just before he died. And then he laid in the tomb for three days where he sort of recuperated. And then he, he came out three days later and everybody just thought this guy had been resurrected. This makes absolutely no sense. First of all, in this, what you'll find out from this book is in all recorded history, there, there is only evidence of two people having survived crucifixion. And the nicest thing I can say is they were never really quite the same after the event. So, so you know, it's a bit like, um, uh, and, and, the, and by the way, one of the people who survived crucifixion didn't live very long afterwards. Um, I doubt I, I, it's doubtful to me that someone could have seen a still naked, still incredibly wounded Christ on the holding on to the, to the threshold of life with a, with a, you know, with the fine string and confused that for a bodily resurrected Jesus. I don't think so. Also, um, we have not a single first century attestation of Jesus's survival of the crucifixion. Every single source we have from Paul of Tarsus to Mark, to Luke, to John, to Matthew, to Josephus says Jesus died on that cross. So going by the the secular historian argument of, well, we can only believe it if it's multiply attested to by extra biblical sources. And, and if it's not, we shouldn't, then you can't believe the swoon hypothesis. So it just doesn't make any, A, it doesn't make any sense. B, there's no attestations to it. It's a later invention invented by people who invented it solely because they've convinced themselves that something like a resurrection isn't possible. Okay. There's also uh, a hypothesis. What, what's what's the other one that's like uh, the, the one the one hypothesis that is that when Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, he had a an epileptic seizure that explains that event because he describes it as a flash of light and. Uh, a hearing of things and some people didn't see it, but they could hear it. And so that, that sounds an awful lot like an epileptic seizure. So that's what that was. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, again, I'm not a, a doctor. I don't know a lot about modern medicine. I don't know how many people only have one epileptic seizure in their entire lives and never have another one. And because they had that one epileptic seizure, they go on to 
join an already existing movement that then goes on to become the largest religion in the world. I mean, there are plenty of people who have epilepsy. And there are probably many wonderful people. I'm sure many of them go to our parish. I, I don't know how many of those people confuse their epileptic seizure with, I just saw the risen Lord. And I'm so convinced of it, I'm willing to be beheaded over this. I've never met any of those people. Maybe it's something that happens all the time. I don't know. But I find that to be, a that is not to me a very convincing explanation for Paul of Tarsus's experience. Paul of Tarsus is also, you have to explain, you have to explain this guy without the resurrection. We know from both uh, Acts and from his own letters that he was a vehement persecutor of the Christian church. And then he went from being this vehement persecutor of the Christian church to its its greatest champion. There's, that's got to be explained. I mean, if I came on the podcast tomorrow and I said, um, I've got some news. Um, I am converting to evangelical Lutheranism. Would you all just say, yeah, well, good for you. Have a good time. Or would you say, okay, wait a minute. Mark over at Tradman just said he's converting to Protestantism. What happened? That'd be the first question I'd ask. What happened? What, you know, there, there's a story here about this. Well, I'm not even a vehement persecutor of the Protestant church or the Protestant religion. I'm, I'm a, I, hope to, I hope that I'm at some level a defender of Catholicism, but I don't want to drag the Protestants off in, in chains to, to Rome where they can be tried and executed. Okay, Paul was doing those things to the Christians. And then he went from being the church's biggest enemy to the church's biggest <coughs> promoter. <coughs> Excuse me. So if we deny the resurrection... We have to explain Paul. And I don't know how you do that. Um, so we're coming up on an hour. I hope that is something interesting for you all to think about. Uh, it was for me. I, I do hope you get a chance to check these books out. And I'd love to have uh, uh, some biblical scholars on to talk about this subject and some, and some, some others that I'm interested in. But... The resurrection is something that really happened. And when you think about that, that's that's incredibly profound and incredibly, I, I mean, I have no words. Sometimes, sometimes I think about the resurrection and I just have no words. I remember one time I was over at my dad's house and my dad is, he's a very strange guy. He's one of these guys who he, con, he converted to the Catholic church in his late twenties, but he holds almost no Catholic beliefs that I can identify. Like he, he likes to brag that he's never been to confession. I was like, why didn't you go to confession? He's like, well, the priest told me the Catholic church didn't do that anymore. I was like, the Catholic church got rid of one of the seven sacraments. Right now here's the deal. My dad could be lying to me to explain why he doesn't need to go to confession. Then again, dad converted in 1972, and it is entirely plausible that a Catholic priest told him that in 1972. I have no way of knowing which one it is. But he almost doesn't believe anything in the Bible that has anything to do with, like, casting out demons or anything like that. But he celebrates Easter. And I was like, Dad, if there's a story in the Bible that sparks all incredulity it's got to be the resurrection and the resurrection has to take the cake out of all the stories in the bible of where supernatural things happen the resurrection has got to be the hardest pill to swallow and yet i'm forced to come to to the real to the to the recognition that that was a real event Christ really bodily bodily resurrected and walked around and appeared to people and and ate 
food and, and people could touch his resurrected body. And, you know, it wasn't some sort of ethereal vision or a, a collective imagination or, or anything like that. It was a real event. Um, I've enjoyed very much talking about this with you. I've kind of rambled. I hope this wasn't a ramble. It's hard to do when you're just one person because I don't have anybody to talk to to bounce this ideas off of. But this was my idea for our Easter show. Um, and if you can think of some other interesting problems that come up when you deny the resurrection, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear from them in the comment section. Cause the, the atheists are right. This resurrection thing is a problem for them. It's a bigger problem than anything else that's talked about in the Bible. Uh, so it's something that is at the core of why we all became Catholic Christians. Uh, so as we close out, I'm not going to do our usual Tradmen intro and extra video and music. I wanted to close out with something that is, in my opinion, the, the most beautiful piece of church music. Um, well, it's, it's, it's the most beautiful piece of music in the church's calendar. Um, and it is the, the introit for Resurrection Sunday. And I wanted to include it as sort of the outgoing music. And if you're watching this podcast, you'll see some images of some famous paintings of the resurrection that I wanted to include also as a, as an Easter present from Jason and myself to all our listeners, but just listen to the words of this introit to the Holy mass for resurrection Sunday. In Latin, it says, Resurrexi et adhuc tecum sum, alleluia. Possuiste super me manum tuum, alleluia. Mirabilis facta essentia tua, alleluia, alleluia. Which means, I arose, and I am still with thee, alleluia. Thou hast laid thy hand upon me, alleluia. Thy knowledge is become wonderful, alleluia, alleluia. Lord, thou hast searched me and know me. Thou knowest my sitting down and my rising up. And that's taken from Psalm 138, verse 1 and 2. And the, the, the tone that this introit is, is intoned in, it just, it, it makes me think of all our human existence and all the pain that our sin has caused us. Excuse me. And at the resurrection, it just gets washed away. There's something very powerful about that. I just, uh, yeah, it's it's beyond words, and it's it is the central mystery of the Christian Church, and it is the reason why. Our life in Christ exists. So it's very important um, and it's very powerful and it's very beautiful. It is, in my opinion, the, the single most beautiful piece of music in the church's calendar. And I, I thought to include it <clears throat> sort of at the end here um, as, as Jason and my Easter present to you. And uh, I just want to thank all of you for joining me here and uh, to talk about this. And it is my wish that all of you and your families have a truly blessed Easter. Resurrexi et ad hoc tecum sum, alleluia. Possuisti super me manum tuum, alleluia. Mirabilis facta es scientia tua, alleluia, alleluia. May Almighty God bless us all. Thank you. Mm -hmm.